The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's take a moment at the beginning to remember where we are in our series on 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And in this section, Peter is trying to help us understand how we as citizens of heaven ought to live in a world where the the citizens of earth are often going to be hostile to our faith, hostile to the claims of Jesus, and therefore we're exiles on earth, and therefore we ought not to expect to be treated well when we share the claims of Jesus. In fact, last week we said in verses 12 to 14 that Peter's trying to give us images for suffering to understand what is God up to? What is He doing? Why do we suffer? Peter doesn't want this to seem strange to us. Remember, we use the analogy of if you see a car in a parking lot going around and parking and then around and parking and then around and parking, after a while you're going to think, this is strange. Until maybe you see the sticker on the side of the car, student driver. And then suddenly you realize, oh, they're practicing. I understand. And what Peter's saying is, so that we don't look at suffering as strange, we need to understand the sticker on our soul in suffering says, refiner's fire. That's what God is doing. We are losing our dross We are gaining a greater glow to our faith. Impurity's gone, purity comes, faith glows, burns hot. So what we understand is that God is at work in using suffering to purify us, especially our faith. Purify our trust in Him. Take everything else away that we could lean on and trust in so that our trust would be pure, fixed, focused on Him. And at the end of chapter 4, verse 14, we saw that we are to regard ourselves in suffering as blessed by God, not forsaken by God. Why can we believe that? Because Peter says the Spirit of God, the very presence of God is resting on you. You're not forsaken by God. The presence of God is resting on you. Be blessed to know that when you have the frown of the world, you have the smile of God so you can make it. Peter is pastoring his people in these trials, saying you can't endure them if you can't interpret them. You can't rejoice in them fully if you interpret them wrongly. He wants them to see what's happening, and it's not strange. Now, this week, Peter builds on that, verses 15 to 19, not focusing so much on why we suffer, but how we suffer. Namely, how do we glorify God in our suffering? How do we make much of Him in suffering rather than making much of us in suffering? So I want to read this text, 1 Peter 4, verses 15 to 19. 
I'll show you not only the main point, but how we find it, and then we'll pray. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So just follow what Peter's doing. He wants you to see, verses 12 to 14, here's what God is doing in suffering. Verses 15 to 19, therefore, how ought we to suffer? Not as an evildoer, punishment that comes rightly for doing wrong. No, no, suffer as a Christian so that you glorify God in that name, in the name of Christ. So how do you glorify Him? Verse 19 is the conclusion. You see the word therefore. Every word is breathed out by God. It matters. Therefore is the conclusion of this entire section, verses 12 to 19. How do you glorify God in suffering? How does a Christian respond? What do you actually do? Not just what do you actually know. What you do, you entrust. Entrust your very souls and trust your very eternity to a faithful God, a faithful creator in suffering while doing good. That's how you find the main point. The main point is the point that everything else supports. It's holding up that conclusion. Everything down here is the support, the beams. Like if you come to my house and see my three-season porch, for some reason, the, the person who built the house has I-beams for that thing. I mean, you could drive a truck on my three-season porch. There are I-beams holding it up. In the same way, there are structural beams of support holding up verse 19. There's a reason you can entrust yourself to God. So let's pray. Father, forbid. Forbid that we would just hear words now. That we would just go away in our minds bloated with more information but our hearts would be unmoved, untouched. Oh God, do verse 19. Do it among us. May we be so moved by the Spirit of God and your word that we are moved to trust, moved to entrust our eternity to you. Do the work, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's the outline. Here's what Peter's doing. Four things. Number one, he first tells us how not to suffer. Verse 15. Then secondly, he tells us how to suffer. Verse 16. Verse 15, don't suffer this way. Verse 16, suffer this way. And then he, he tells us why. Verses 17 to 18 with this tale of two judgments. And then verse 19, the conclusion 
where he tells us to entrust ourselves. So how not to suffer, how to suffer. Here's why these two judgments and therefore, point four, entrust. We begin with point one. Look at verse 15. Here's how not to suffer. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, I didn't know if I would even bring this up, but I think I will. Sometimes we have seminary students. They have their Greek Bible out, and you'll, you'll notice something about verse 15. The ESV translates it, but, but actually the Greek text has the word for or because. And I think there's a reason for that. There's logic here. He's saying from the previous passage, you can rejoice when you share in Christ's suffering because you're being insulted for bearing the name of Christ. Regard that as a blessing because. Why? Why can you rejoice in suffering as you share in Christ's suffering because you're not suffering as an evildoer? You're not suffering as somebody who deserves the punishment, in other words. That's, there's no blessing in that. There's just justice in that. No, you're blessed to share in Christ's sufferings because you're not suffering as an evil doer. So not all suffering, in other words, here's the logic, not all suffering qualifies as a source of joy and blessing. It has to be suffering in the name of Christ. So it's a matter of identification with Him, not justice for doing wrong. Look at this list of evils here. It's obvious, isn't it, both in the Old Testament law and in Greco-Roman law, it was illegal, it was criminal to murder or steal. So we know he's giving obvious examples of what evil would look like. And then the third word he uses is evil doer. There's a place where that word shows up in 1 Peter, and it's 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Listen to this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to what? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Same word. What he's saying is you shouldn't suffer for doing things that God sent governors to punish. You shouldn't be regarded by the empire as an evildoer because that would not be the name of Christ. He, he never sinned. You don't want to be associated with wrongdoing. So don't be regarded as the ones that, that the, the governor is being sent to punish. He's already said you're supposed to be on the other side, those doing good, that is praiseworthy. They call attention to the beauty of Christ, the moral goodness of God. So he's saying, don't be treated this way, regarded this way. But then look at the fourth word. This is so interesting to me. He, he combines, don't suffer as a, and then he has three terms, murder, thief, evildoer, all criminal things. But then he adds, or even as, fourth term, a meddler. What is this? What is this word meddler? It's not easy to interpret. In fact, the commentator Thomas Schreiner says this. This fourth word represents one of the most difficult interpretive problems in the New Testament. 
I read that and said, oh, good. This word translated meddler occurs nowhere else in the New Testament, nowhere in the Septuagint, and nowhere in other Greek literature before 1 Peter. In other words, Peter made this term up, I think. You only get this term after Peter. It never occurs before that, so people just scratch their head to say, what is it? We can't look at other uses of it because there are none. But later, you do get this word meddler. This word is composed of two different terms, and it translates roughly as this, looking in to the affairs of others. Looking into the affairs of others, moving into them. Some people look at this word and think, well, the other three terms are criminal terms, so this fourth one must be two. So they come up with a word like embezzler. But there's no evidence that it ever means that. I think what Peter's doing is he's saying, don't just focus on the things that are obviously evil and criminal, but also you have a call, Christian, to walk in a way with outsiders that is wise, tactful, not awkward, clumsy. Don't get involved as the self-appointed moral police and always be looking in, ready to catch people in their wrongdoing. Don't meddle in places that you don't belong. Don't take it upon yourself to be regarded not as somebody shining the beauty of Christ, but somebody that's like a moral pest always looking over their shoulder, checking to see, are are they doing right? Are they doing wrong? How can I correct them? Peter's saying, be wise in the way that you walk and live with outsiders. Don't be regarded as the moral police or as pests, but as those who are shining the light of Christ, always living in love and gentleness and respect, not as the self-appointed judges meddling where you don't belong. He's saying not just don't be criminal. He's saying be careful how you walk among others so that what comes across is the winsomeness of Christianity not tactless, clumsy, and forced. So number two, that's how not to suffer. Now, verse 16, how do you suffer? Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I want to see three things here in this verse. First, notice that he says, you must suffer Not as an evildoer, but as a Christian. So the stress is put on that name, Christian. You see it at the beginning of the verse and at the end of the verse. If anyone suffers as a, there's the name, Christian, end of the verse, let him glorify God in that name, namely that name, Christian. So what does that name actually mean? I learned something this week because I was looking at that word Christian. It's the word Christianoi. And I thought, what, what is that suffix? Why does that appear at the end? Christ something. And I found a parallel with those who are the followers or supporters of Herod. 
They're called in Mark's gospel, Herodianoi, meaning the followers of Herod, the supporters of Herod. In other words, Christianoi would be the followers of Christ, the supporters of Christ, those who are putting their trust and hope in Christ. What a great word for our political season, is it not? We're we're not the followers of Trump or Biden or Republicans or Democrats. We are followers of Christ, trusting in Christ. We bear the name as Christians, and it's not Democrat, Republican. It's Christ followers, trusting in Christ as our king, as our leader. That's what the name means. So suffer in that name as those who trust Christ, follow Christ. Your allegiance is to Christ. Let everybody know it. And then he says, secondly, in that name, don't be ashamed. Shame for the name of Jesus would here mean in the face of suffering, bending over backwards to not sound too Christian, to shield yourself from suffering. Meaning if I, if I claim the name of Jesus too loudly, I'm going to be getting blowback, so I'm going to put up a shield here and not be too closely identified with him. I find it amazing that where this word occurs for shame Don't be ashamed. It often is followed on the heels of suffering. For example, the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, speaking to Timothy, says, Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So know this, he says, Timothy, Here's the testimony of our Lord, and people like me are imprisoned for it. So don't back away from that to protect yourself. Don't be ashamed of it. Rather, bear it. Own it. Make it be loud and clear, front and center. Not ashamed of this name. Not backing away from the name of Jesus to protect myself. No, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. The appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. You hear it? Look at all that Jesus did, and here I am, Paul says, I'm making it front and center. I'm pointing to him. Look what he did. And I'm suffering as I do that. But I suffer as I do because I can't stop talking about the greatest thing in the universe. Then he says, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. Notice he doesn't just say, I know what I've believed in. I know that what I'm believing is very reliable. He says, no, I know who I've believed in. I'm not ashamed of Christ. Not only am I not ashamed of the things about Christ that I think are reliable, I'm not ashamed of Him in any way. Bring suffering on. I'm not backing away 
from the name that I bear, namely the Christ that I trust. You're not going to get me to back away from him. And Peter's saying, don't budge from that name. Don't let people intimidate you, push you back away from the name. Stand in that name, loud and proud, front and center, clear and winsome. Christ is worth it. Third, not just suffer as a Christian and therefore don't be ashamed of the name. He says the opposite of being ashamed would be to glorify God in that name. Instead of being ashamed of it, you're praising Him for it. Praising God, calling attention to God, magnifying it. In other words, you're not backing away. You're just saying it louder. You're just praising Him all the more. The opposite of being ashamed of the name of Jesus would be to confess Him publicly, praise Him publicly, not back away an inch, take more ground. Speak up more. This verse says that the goal of all Christian suffering is to glorify God. I don't want to just skip over that as if glorify God is now secondhand terminology. Oh, we all know what that means. Heard it a thousand times. Glorify God. No, no, no. Let's, let's be clear what it means. If it's the most important thing in the universe, let's be most clear about it. The glory of God is the shining forth of the sum total of his perfections, his essence, his holiness. Like the Psalms say, the splendor of his holiness. So here's God in all of his perfections, and those perfections have a a glow, a glow of his greatness. Like every time you see in movies or TV or whatever, if somebody uncovers a treasure, like a treasure chest, you know it's a great treasure when you open it and there's a glow. That's the first thing that you see. And you're supposed to be overwhelmed by the glow of it. The brightness of it says that's the glow of the greatness of that treasure. In the same way, Peter says, there is a shining forth, a glow of the greatness of God. And Christians glorify God, not by making him more glorious or making him more beautiful, but by calling attention and magnifying that greatness. Instead of in suffering, making much of us in suffering, calling attention to the world and saying, look how much I'm suffering. Look how much I'm going through. Look how bad I'm being treated. That would be making much of us in suffering. It says the opposite. Rather than making much of us in suffering, we make much of God in suffering. When we say not, look how bad I'm being treated, look at how well I'm being upheld. Look at how God is holding me through this. We sometimes say things like, how are you holding up? You know the answer to that? You're not holding yourself up. He's holding you up. 
You glorify God in suffering. That's the call, and you call attention not to how well you're holding up under suffering, but how He is holding you up in suffering. What is God up to in suffering? He's doing what He's doing all the time in every other thing. He's pursuing His own glory. That's what it's about. Let me give you a little bit of a tornado tour of this in Scripture so you don't take my word for it. Everything that God does, He does for His own glory. Why does He choose us in Christ before the very foundation of the world? Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Calling attention to how great God is that He took the initiative and everything to bring us into His family. We praise His grace. Why did God make us? Isaiah 43, 7, everyone whom I have made for my glory. Before creation, at creation, for his glory. Why did Jesus come into the world? What was God up to in the coming of Christ? Romans 15, verse 8, Christ came in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, the Jewish people, God made promises, Christ came to vindicate that, verify that. Why? So that the Gentiles too could glorify God for His mercy. Look at how faithful God is to keep His promises and to bring both Jew and Gentile into His family so that all would glorify Him. What does Christ want when He comes? What does He want for us? James Leckler said, yes, to be one in John 17, in in order to be one, but also Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? So that we'll have no more tears, we'll, we'll have heaven, we'll have more of whatever you like here on earth. No, that they may see my glory. That is what is in the longing of every heart is to be face to face with ultimate beauty and glory. Jesus says the most loving prayer that I could pray for these people is to see the glory face to face. That's what I'm asking for them, Father. Or, why is Jesus coming back? For his bride. What will his bride do when he comes back? 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. What is his bride going to do on that day? You're way more beautiful than I ever even imagined. He's coming back face to face, Faith becomes sight. And what's going to happen in all of our hearts? Like when the bride comes down the aisle, it's going to be different. It's not going to be him saying, you're more beautiful than I thought. It's going to be us saying, you are way more beautiful than I even imagined. It's coming to be marveled. 
Or, why did Jesus endure suffering? What did he say in that moment? John chapter 12, verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Is that what we say in suffering? Is that what he says in suffering? No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus recognizes, I'm not just asking for escape. I know I came to earth for this purpose. So I'm not going to say escape hatch. I'm going to say this, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. That's what all your ministry has been about. I've glorified my name through you, and I will glorify it again through your death and resurrection. Everything that God does, he does for his glory. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, we're supposed to do everything we do for his glory, eating or drinking. 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11, we're supposed to serve each other with spiritual gifts so that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. We're supposed to do good works, Matthew 5, 16, in order to glorify our Father in heaven. In other words, here's the truth. We are called to have a heart that wants to see God be glorified in everything whether it's suffering or eating and drinking or serving one another, we're called to have a heart that wants to glorify God. And the truth of the matter is we're joining God in that. When you ask, who has the heart that is the most passionate to see God be glorified? Answer, God. God's own heart. Look in this room, look in this world, look in the universe. Where is the most God-centered, heart-pursuing, God's glory? It's God's own heart. So in the same way, when we enter into suffering, we don't just say, God, help me escape it. And we don't say, I'm going to make much of me in this. We're going to say, I trust you have a purpose. And I know that purpose is to make much of you help me do that. If you ask God, what is going on here? Why specifically is this happening? You won't usually get an answer. If you ask God, how can I glorify you in this? How can I make much of you in this? You will get an answer. God loves to answer that prayer. It's all for the glory of God. Third, why? Why can we glorify God in suffering? You have to understand, Peter says, these two judgments. Look at verse 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Let me try to explain this because there's so much happening here. Let's look at the very words Peter uses. Notice he doesn't say, it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. He says the household of God. Why? Because he's actually alluding here to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, both in Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3, when God comes, judgment begins with the temple. Judgment begins with the people of God in the sanctuary of God. And Peter says, that's what's happening. There's a final judgment. When we talk about the the judgment, we usually mean, oh, that judgment to come. There's also a sense in which it's also the judgment that's begun already. And Peter's saying, it's starting with you, temple of God. Remember 1 Peter 2? It says, we're the temple. We're We're the spiritual bricks making up the spiritual house, and we're the spiritual priests making spiritual sacrifices. Judgment, namely suffering, is starting with you. Why? In Malachi 3, the answer is that he is refining. Malachi 3, verse 1. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? What will happen for us? He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver. Then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in former years. What's happening? Peter wants us to see judgment is coming upon you, temple of God, so that you'll be purified and that you as spiritual priests can offer spiritual sacrifices in righteousness to God. We already saw that's what suffering is. It's purifying, it's refining, and now he's just saying it again. Understand, the reason this fire has come upon you called suffering is to purify you, not to destroy you. Understand that. You can't glorify God in it if you don't know what he's doing in it. And then he quotes from Proverbs. Proverbs 11.31 reinforces this. If the righteous is scarcely saved, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You need to understand what that word scarcely means. It can be taken in two different senses. Scarcely could mean like barely or rarely, I think that's what it means in Romans 5, 7, somebody will scarcely die for a righteous person. Very rarely would that ever happen. But that's not what it means here. Christians will rarely be saved, or even barely be saved. That that would be going against what we learn in Romans where sin increases, grace abounds. When it uses salvation language, it's not scarcely, it's abounding. But there's a second way this word is used, and it's especially in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 27, when the, the ship is going, it says they make it to their landing place with difficulty. The winds 
are against them. And they make it there, but they make it there with the wind in their face. What a picture of what's happening to Christians. It's not easy, smooth sailing to the celestial shores. God didn't set up salvation that way, dear friends. He didn't set up your life in such a way that it would just be candy land, easy, smooth sailing, no problems. This life is not a big rock candy mountain for us. It says you are on this road sailing towards the heavenly shores and the wind feels like it's against you so that you make it, but you make it with difficulty. What's he talking about? He's talking about God has ordained that you would go through suffering and it would feel like the winds of this world are against you all the way to the heavenly shore. But here's the good news. Peter says, if, if God designed salvation so that the wind would be against you until you get to heaven, or this fire that falls on you would be to purify you, what is going to happen to those who don't follow Christ? The answer, rhetorically, is how much worse is it going to be? Visually, the picture is if the fire that falls on us refines, on, refines us, then the fire that falls on them will destroy them. The fire that we have is temporary, and it's for our good to refine us to be more like the children of God that we are. He's saying rejoice that you get that fire because the fire that's coming upon unbelievers is not temporary and it will destroy. So the word to Christians is glorify God by knowing that when this fire is coming, you're saying, God, do your work. Make me more like Christ. Thank you that it's not that fire. Thank you, Jesus, that you died to save me from that fire, so I will take this fire. The word to those who aren't following Christ, be saved from the wrath that's coming. Come to Jesus. I'm not promising you an easy life. I'm just promising you eternal life. It's worth it. So what do we do? Verse 19. Here's how I'm going to close. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's what I want you to see. Three things. Why does he say we suffer according to God's will? He's trying to encourage us again with the truth that all suffering first passes through the hands of our Father. 
It can feel like in this world suffering is coming at you just willy-nilly, that the winds that are coming at you, you wonder, is anybody actually in control over this? This verse says, it's all passing through your Father's hands first. So He means good for you in it. That's reinforced by saying God is a faithful creator. Second, You can embrace suffering as God's will only if you believe that the hands that this is passing through, the will that this is coming from, that he's faithful, that he knows what he's doing, that he's trustworthy, that you can trust him with it. And not only is he faithful, he's the creator, meaning he is the sovereign God with the whole world in his hands. Nothing is happening apart from his will. There's no Adam in this entire world that's outside of the will of God. No maverick molecules. It's coming from the hands of your Father who has the whole world in His hands. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong or the wind seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And if you see it's all coming from his hands and he's got the whole world in his hands and he's faithful, what do we do? Here's Peter's whole point. Entrust. Here's what I think that means. The the word means to Give something to someone and trust it to their safekeeping. Like you you give money to a bank and you say, there there better be a good security system and everything here because I need this money. I'm entrusting it to you. Or you give somebody a job and you entrust they're gonna do a good job. The word here is that we are giving not our money, not only our circumstances, but all of our eternity, our very souls, and saying, you're faithful with it. I may not get what's going on, but you do, and I'm giving it to you. I remember, I don't have many memories when I was a kid, but I can remember my dad at the swimming pool When all I would do, I was so afraid to jump in the water, I would sit at the end. Actually, this happened to me at a birthday party. Kind of embarrassing. Everybody else is swimming. I was so scared that I sat at the edge of the pool and just kicked water. You want to come in? Nope. Doing fine. And my dad said, jump. I'll catch you catch you. And it took me a while. But I trusted my dad. I knew he wasn't going to be saying, come on, and be looking the other way. Not interested. Go talk to somebody else. He just stood there. I'll get you. And then he said, trust me. And I jumped, and I didn't drown. I'm still here. It's saying to you right now, your father in suffering has his arms stretched out to you, 
saying, trust me. Jump. I'll catch you. I won't drop you. You're my child. I'm not going to look away. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about suffering. I'll close with this. So far as personal sorrows are concerned, it would be such a sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by His hand. That my trials were never measured out by Him. Sent to me by His own arrangement of their weight and quantity. How bitterness indeed! May we see that our Heavenly Father fills the cup with loving tenderness, holds it out, and says, drink, my child. He's saying this to you in suffering. Drink, my child, bitter as it is. It's a love potion. It will do you eternal good. Let's pray. Fathers, you hold out your arms. And in suffering say, it's it's all past from my hands. I poured it. I measured it. God, help us to jump. Help us to entrust. Help us to drink. And make much of you in it, knowing you will hold us fast. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.